Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Alex, I have been waiting for this episode for so long. People that have read your book know, which by the way, all of our viewers and listeners should be doing if you haven't already, and you can get it in the United States now, right, Alex, on Amazon? That's right, Brian. Finally available uh, in the US. It was held back for a promotion for Father's Day. So uh, it got released in the run up to uh, Father's Day. Finally, you can get Lessons from History in all good bookshops and online retailers, one of the larger ones. And of course, there are many available. One of the most prominent has now uh, finally released it. Uh, and that's uh, it's been a source of great happiness for me and my American readers. And for all of our American viewers who've been frustrated, go buy it. If for no other reason, you can double check us on the stories we're telling. And that'll be fun because occasionally we do need to be corrected. Am I right? You are, especially when we've had a few uh, halfway through a story. Yeah, that <laughs> Fair. is true. Okay, look, I said I've been looking forward to this. So part of the tagline yeah. of our show, as our viewers know, is things that are uh, implausible but actually happened. And this has to top the list of the most implausible things that ever happened. If I had in my screenwriting hat written this story and taken it to a, a studio and called it the Sea Wolves, uh, th there's no chance they buy it if it hadn't actually happened. So Alex, tell us about the Calcutta Light Horse. I'd be delighted. This is one of my favorite stories from the Second World War. And it's, as you imply, one of the most unlikely. Um, Portugal's neutrality in uh, the Second World War was very important to Britain and indeed to the United States. Uh, they had permitted Allied activity uh, from the Azores, um, which were vital in combating German U-boats uh, that threatened the merchant ship lifelines between our countries and, uh, and uh, protected the naval vessels that were crucial to the prosecution of the war. Um, without the use of the um, base on the Azores that the Portuguese permitted the British to use, there would the mid-Atlantic gap, which was uh, between air cover offered to the convoys and on either side, that mid-Atlantic gap would have been much, much larger. And that gap was the happy hunting ground for, um, excuse me, the happy hunting ground for U-boats. Um, Anyone who wants to understand the importance of that gap in World War II and future history, and also what it was like to run that gap as a merchant, should check out the film with American treasure Tom Hanks uh, that is running on HBO Max, the name of which I cannot remember, but I will Greyhound. That at the end. Greyhound, yes. Yeah, have, you, have you seen good. that? Yeah, yeah it's, it's extremely good. And it makes uh, the point, right, that we yeah. had to, we, that had to be protected. Correct. And, and the Azores didn't, even the, with the Azores, didn't completely close the gap, but it just made it right. a lot smaller. Um, so we need. We wanted to keep the Portuguese on side. Um, the world's oldest alliance is between the United Kingdom and Portugal. Is that longer uh, than the longest war? That alliance. It is much longer than the uh, the longest war, and we were careful in our alliance. We have a, um, a mutual aid clause which says you can call on the other to to come to your aid. The United Kingdom never invoked that because they didn't want to force the Portuguese to have to choose uh, between the alliance and their neutral status. The Portuguese traded on cons conspicuously favorable terms um, with the UK and uh, remained neutral. But there was a problem. Um, in 1942, 
our special operations executive, SOE, realized that. Sorry, let, me, let, me, let me just say for our American viewers, that would be the equivalent of the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, in our World War II operations, which became the Central Intelligence Agency, which was my career home for many years. That's right. And indeed, well known to me because OSS is the organization that the hero in Wolfenstein 3D um, plays a part, a, yes. a game a game in which... Uh, uh, our hero kills many Nazis, but was banned in Germany because it has the swastika in it. Rather difficult to, <laughs> um, and, and, and to be fair, some songs that were banned in, in Germany as well. Anyway, 1942, SOE discovers that there are coded messages that are being sent to the U-boats in the Indian Ocean, describing with precision where Allied shipping was going to be. And that allowed the, sh the sinking of huge numbers of Allied ships. Portugal's overseas possessions included Goa in India. Uh, by the way, that was the last colonial possession, I think, in India to be given up, uh, technically by force, because the Indians had to march in with an army to do it. Actually, were, I don't think there were shots fired, but yeah, they, the Portuguese never gave it up voluntarily. Anyway, um, a Gestapo spy was identified in the port at Goa, and undercover, SOE sent men into Goa, which was pretty risky. Yeah. Kid to, to kidnap him. When they found him, he was there with his wife, uh, who was unexpectedly at home uh, on that day. So they kidnapped her too. Oh boy! So they seized these two people. They take them back over the border. That British action was unquestionably an infringement of Portuguese neutrality, yeah. a great ally's neutrality. Just as the spies' presence was a, a right. violation of their neutrality in the first place from the Germans. But snatching a spy is one thing. Yeah, manageable and uh, concealable. The challenge that arose from the intelligence that the British got as a result of that operation was different and a rather larger problem. If you think about where, if you think about India, Goa is on the west coast of India. It was home to a very large and important harbour, uh, Mormago. And when war was declared, merchant ships from the Axis powers had taken refuge there. They were interned. If you think about where, if you think about India, Goa is on the um, west side. And um, when war was, and there's an important harbour um, in, in Goa called Mermago, and when the Second World War was declared, um, merchant ships from the Axis powers were interned there. They took refuge there. And for some time, that didn't matter at all, Brian, so what? Yeah. But now what we revealed as a result of the kidnap and so forth was that these ships were the, the, the location where the base being used to transmit the codes. Now, that's not a pair of Gestapo spies that you can snatch out of their house. Right. This is well-crewed, rather conspicuously well-defended uh, for, for ships in neutral harbours. Um, vessels... And and was having serious consequences to the war effort. Enormously right? serious. Yeah. And they're more, more than a neutral harbor. So what to do? The solution is a heady mix of boys' own adventure and old boys' network that would no doubt uh, attract the disapproval of the modern-day sensitivity reader, such as it depends on old-school ties and so forth. The SOE leading officer in the case happened to know, because they were drinking buddies, of a, an old, some old buffers who were 1,400 miles away from Goa in Calcutta. Tell our North American viewers, what is a buffer? There's an old chap. It's a, yeah, an old boy. So um, we would say like hanging out at the country club, drinking gin and tonics, playing that polo. E exactly that sort of chap. Uh, and um, th these chaps were in a group called the Calcutta Light Horse, which had been a reserve unit since the Boer War. This is, you know, so it wasn't exactly frontline stuff. <laughs> there, was a, there, was a, there was a second subsidiary Scottish unit that was um, affiliated with them. But 
for the sake of ease, we'll call them the Calcutta Light Horse. And like other units that were, inverted commas, on reserve in the old British Raj, by this point, it was just a genteel club for rotund chaps in their middle age and older, who nowadays in my country, tell me if this exists in yours, in my country, they'd be called gammons, um, because it, white men a, of a certain age who go pews as they're expressing look, their opinions. It, it, it's a poor scene reference. Yeah. We, we don't, we don't have that exact thing, but if yeah, it's actually, it's, 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 it's also a political thing. It's used by ah. people stupidly on the left. And it, I think it reflects badly of the person using it as a pejorative about someone's color. Uh, but anyway, that's sort of big... we, we don't really have that. We have a lot of bad stuff here, but not that. Well, you're blessed. So, yes, these chaps had largely seen service, but that was long ago. Right. You know, the First World War being the most recent. Think about the fact we're in the 1940s. These are not guys in the first flush of youth. And the club's uh, focus, as you imply, is on polo and drinking. On the other hand, they could be trusted. They were keen to do their bit in the war, and they were plausibly deniable because yes. they were not active military, and right. who would possibly believe them to be some sort of assault team? By the way, Alex, they also would have been, well, there was no Geneva Convention at the time, but, but now they would have been considered illegal enemy combatants and Correct. not protected by the convention. So they were, they were taking a huge risk. And also it was the Nazis, so who cared what the law said? Yeah, well, correct. So following the call to help the war effort, war effort from this SOE guy, so he said, I want you to help, can't tell you what it is. Um, the problem they had was turning away volunteers because uh, every single one of the light horse volunteered. And all of these people were between your age and mine, right? Or even older. Oh, right? you're kidding. Yeah. No, you're kidding. No one is young as me. These are, uh, well, fifties, fifties to seventies. Fifties right? is the earliest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so the plan is in three parts. First, uh, some of them cross the entirety of India by rail. Uh, northeast to southwest, the entire like this is enormous, or uh, on various pretty flimsy business pretexts. Second, they got an old barge that was meant for river work, Get and they were going to sail that all the way around India. That's two uh, oceans, yeah. It's crazy. Uh, where they would meet up with the men and then head up to Goa midway up the west coast. Third, one of their number would go on to Goa and put on a party that would truly set the town alight. Every sailor in town will be told, you know, a generous old nautical soul has decided to put on free booze and free prostitutes uh, for oh, all the goodness. seamen in town that night. <laughs> that would, uh, the British thought, that would get most of these sailors off the boats. Well, you, know, you might ask, then what? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? The old buffers sail their river barge up to the biggest boat, which they figure held the transmitter, kill the Germans, seize the transmitter, seize the code book, sink the ship, if caught, well, chaps, just you know, chuck the guns overboard and say that you were a, a drunken businessman uh, out on hijinks. Uh, an alibi that they supported by pouring whiskey over themselves before going on the mission. Uh, that Each, is something we would definitely do if we were in that situation. Yeah, the truth, yes. Some quite. version of it. But you know, there would be whiskey involved. Each aspect of that plan is plainly preposterous. It all worked. The boat was Amazing. sunk. Uh, and actually, the crew, realizing they were under attack, did what they'd been trained to do and scuttled uh, the ship. The transmitter was seized, uh, albeit the Germans had successfully burnt the code books. But otherwise, yeah, transmitter seized, boat sunk. The other German boats, fearing out it was a much larger Allied operation than, in fact, it was, they scuttled themselves as well. And an Italian ship in the harbor just joined in for good measure. <laughs> scuttled itself. <laughs> British casualties, zero. And um, U-boat activities in this arena of war 
promptly dropped off a cliff. So this action, admittedly, as you were implying, mucky in terms of neutrality, but addressing the covert violation of said neutrality by the other side in the first place, saved at least hundreds and definitely thousands of lives and saved just as importantly, not, not to sound callous, but for the military effort, saved tens of thousands of tons of material desperately needed for the war effort. Right. Could have been one of those hinges that had it gone the other way would have, I don't Correct. know, doomed the war, but it certainly would have killed a lot more people. Correct. Um, Oh, just one more thing, chaps, when they successfully all, every single one of them, get back to Calcutta. Just one more thing, chaps. Having uh, come back to the service after decades off duty, pulling off something nobody thought could be done, um, say nothing, tell no one. See, the Portuguese wouldn't like it, you see. And they didn't for 30 years. Not a single one of them told anyone or certainly if they told one person that they trusted, it never leaked. But they, even if they, many of them didn't tell their families, went to their graves unrecognized. They just weren't the sort of men who bragged. And There's, as you know, we have, we have uh, statute of limitations on a lot of military documents and records. And um, post-declassification in the 1970s, this story became public. And as you were um, saying, it became a pretty serviceable film called The Sea Wolves. Everyone's mm -hmm. in it from the time. Trevor Gregory Howard, Peck. Gregory Peck, Roger Moore, um, David Niven. It's hacked, the storyline gets hacked about a bit. I love interest inserted inevitably, but it's, it's still pretty good. Um, Another postscript. Later on in our national archives, we've a historian, James Lisa, who wrote the brilliant book, The Boarding Party, that, um, mm -hmm. that gave rise to the film and did the research. In the national archives, it's, it's shown that three of the German sailors who were declared missing that night had in fact defected to the British. They seized the chance in oh, this moment. So we didn't just have no casualties. We came back plus three. It's like my university used to do when it toured <laughs> South Africa in rugby. You know, you went out with a squad of 25 and you came back 28 because you picked up three on the way. They came back with the Calcutta light horse and they served with the British for the rest of the war. Um, and others amongst the crews of these scuttled ships, understandably, given what post-war Germany was like, were offered the choice, you want to go home to Germany, you want to stay here in India. They settled in India. And when the Sea Wolves was made, Roger Moore yes. uh, stayed with this blonde-haired, blue-eyed family yes. who, were, who were quite, quite unashamed to say, we were descendants <laughs> of the families of the guys you're playing, you know, of the villains in this bit that you guys go out and shoot. And um, they, that family babysat Roger Moore's kids in the making of the movie, which yeah, I like. Yeah, you, you blew the only fun fact I was going to add to the uh, story. I'm sorry. Well, anyway, let, me, so, let me round it off by saying the Calcutta Light Horse was, of course, like so much in Britain's post-war haste to divest itself of its history um, in the course of Indian independence and so forth. The Calcutta Light Horse was disbanded uh, pretty damn quick. No thanks was given. And no recognition was delivered to the men who did this amazing thing. I am sure that the men of the light horse resented disbandment a great deal. And I doubt they cared very much about the publicity at all. Mm. Well, nothing more to say, except it's so implausible. It must be true. But there is a lot to unpack here. So first of all, has the has your government given a lot of recognition to their families. Was there ever an event where they celebrated it once it was declassified? Not to my knowledge, but you've got to remember the age of these guys when they did it, and it was declassified no, no, no. 30 years after the war. Right, but so, I'm, saying, I'm saying they're descendants. No, I, I mean, it may be the case. And in fact, James Lisa, who's still around, and, and um, I had a very nice Twitter exchange with him about, uh, about his book. Um, he may know more than me, but to my knowledge, no. Well, we should try to get him on the show because really 
I guarantee you that our viewers are going to want to hear every single possible little nugget about this thing they can. Slightly more serious note, this took a very long time to declassify for a very good reason. I will speculate based on 15 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, they might have wanted to use it again. And let me just hmm. say, I, I recommend to our viewers, if you haven't seen it, the brilliant movie Argo, uh, which depicts the operation in which the cia got a number of our diplomats out of oh, the Iran. movie oh it's brilliant yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Because, sorry as in they pretend that they're making a movie yes yeah. so, the, yeah, so it's brilliant. this is a little meta but the movie argo is a movie about the cia pretending to make a movie to get people out of iran and it contains maybe my favorite movie in any cinema after 1970 which is this moment where ben affleck as the CIA agent who's officer who's responsible for this whole thing is at the Hollywood Hills home of Alan Arkin, who's the Hollywood producer that they've engaged to make a fake movie so they can stage it in Iran. And Arkin is looking through this mountain of scripts trying to pick a movie. And at some point, Ben Affleck just says, Jesus, who cares? It's a fake movie. Just pick one. And Arkin says, listen, if I'm going to make a fake movie, it's going to be a fake hit. <laughs> it's honestly it's like it's like they wrote the entire film right. around that one line and, and i think the final meta piece when we, someone makes the space opera argo uh that is in if they haven't done already they probably have but uh that, yes, I, I like that you know I, our, our executive producer ivan i'm sure is listening that's a broadway musical yeah, I agree. Like the springtime for Hitler. Yeah, okay. yeah I, I agree. But I also, I, I'm not sure I agree. I'm sure in part your point about wanting potentially to use the device again may have sat behind the lengthy um, restriction on classification. But I'll tell you the other one that's in my mind. Portugal after the war obviously had its great historic disruptions very prickly in its international relations. Yes. Do you want to reveal that you violated their neutrality not that long ago? Probably not. If you want to keep yeah. them on side, you want to put as much distance between the event and that being revealed as possible. Well, I'm sure a lot of our listeners by now know that my relationship with you is in part based on your founding of Big Brother Watch. So I wonder, you must have mixed feelings about government secrecy about operations like this, yeah? Um, yes and no. I accept that there is such a thing as the national interest. I think it's invoked far too frequently. I think it's invoked for the wrong reasons. And I think it's invoked all too often to pre preserve or protect people from embarrassments or from fear of the revealing of incompetence rather than, um, rather than for good reasons. But in this example, I, I mean, I don't know of any civil libertarian who believes that there should be no wartime secrecy, you know, such that you should broadcast your battle right. plans so that the enemy hears. But no, no, no. Right. Um, and indeed, I accept that some that there are occasions on which it is acceptable for a politician to lie on the floor of the House of Commons so as to mislead the enemy. That it's acceptable for the press secretary of the president of the United States to lie so as to mislead the enemy. And it must be a logical corollary of that, that not revealing that act of subterfuge that you've right. done is also potentially acceptable. Right. Now, did they get the call right in this example? I don't know. I accept that people have to impose blunt tools on these things. And, you know, someone sticks a sticker on it that says 30 years. Maybe they got that wrong. Maybe it could have been 20. But, you know, on the other hand, it could have been 50, Brian. So, you know, well, we, we owe the uh, some of these guys might have been alive after 30 because it was 30 rather than 50. So... 
Well, and, 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 you know, to be completely honest, a lot of it is just bureaucracy. You know, that's right. We have, we have hundreds of, I'm sure I'm making this number up, but I'm sure we have hundreds of millions of pages of classified documents, both of our countries that really don't need to be classified anymore, but who is going to go and read all those documents and make a decision about something that happened 50 years ago. I happen to know my daughters will tell you this, a secret of what is in Area 51. And it is not UFOs, but it is unbelievably cool. That secret will change our view of the Cold War. And it is set for declassification in 2025, unless President at the time decides to extend it. So I understand the reasons for it, but I also will say to you that based on 15 years of experience, a lot of this shit is arbitrary because no one gets to it. Right. Well, and, and, have... and also it's, it's much easier bureaucratically. You're never going to get fired for keeping right. the document classified. You don't get fired for keeping it classified. You might get fired for unclassifying it. Yeah. And therefore the brave thing to do is to release it to the public. Well, you've dropped a hell of a, um, a teaser there for hidden histories in 2025. Yes. Uh, we will have I'm... an episode on it. I will ask you no more about it, given you can't say than to say that that's very um, interesting indeed. And I'm going to say to you, great talking to you about the light horse. I doubt it's the last time we're going to talk about it, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. As did I. And I have one more thing we need to discuss, and it's right. quite weighty and serious, Al. I better drop a drink then. I watched the sea wolves for the first yep. time over the weekend. And I totally agree with you. It is serviceable. It's not it's fine. It's, it's a it, good film. It's no force 10 from Navarone. Let's agree on that, but it is a decent movie. And of course, one of the spies, the star spies of the movie is Roger Moore, which means we have to discuss best bond ever. Roger Moore. Very Please make your case. Roger Moore was the actor imagined by, envisaged by Fleming um, in many of the books. I mean, Wait, liter Fleming. literally Ian Fleming yeah. said this? He was unavailable because he was doing The Saint at the time. Yes, a long -running great show. show. Yeah. Uh, but he was the, he was the actor who, who, he, who Fleming thought embodied the, uh, the Bond that he wanted. I think that um, I think Bond, the, the movies that he's in, let's say the, the movies that Moore is in, encapsulate all the best that that is Bond about the light elements of humor and absurdity sometimes, but you know, great kind of operatic plots, and uh, and I like his performances very much. So, uh, sort of, and sometimes the point of Bond is to be a bit a, a bit theatrical and 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 hammy, and um, there's and there's something warm about the more Bond era that I'm sure reflects one my childhood. But I think he's a far better Bond than any of those who came before or after, and I also think that far better. Far better. And I think that when people get het up with the, uh, their love of the current incumbent, they forget that um, they, they, they perhaps omit to think about the fact that the Jason Bourne movies, which were coming out at around the same yeah. time as, as our more recent Bonds, right. basically changed the the positioning of uh, of the Craig Bond from uh, from someone who um, was just a, a good kind of spy figure to this automaton of, of destruction yeah. and then at the and then in the last outing sort of uber woke endlessly weeping um, you know so there's no question for me that Roger Moore is the best Bond you're saying Roger Moore doesn't cry. Oh well, he doesn't cry in those movies anyway but you know you see what I'm saying there's, are, there's a are, light are, 
are you going to plausibly look in this camera and stand up for Moonraker? Yeah, it's fun. Yes, I, I am actually. And also, I think Jaws is a great villain. Uh, you know, he's one of these that, part I'll, of I'll spot you that. memorable villains and, and amusing storylines. And instead of this, in this incredibly long story arc about a not particularly interesting Blofeld that dominated the Craig era. And they're suggesting they're sort of quasi siblings or, you know, not siblings exactly, but, you know, they, they grew up in shared households and, and it all comes down into the into daddy issues and resentment. of I mean, it's so boring. Okay. So, all right. Second favorite Bond. I'd probably, no, Timothy Dalton. No kidding. Yeah, oh, my God. I think he's the absolute worst Bond. And I also think he doesn't even. I'm sorry. My dogs are barking. Yes, your, dog's upset. your dog's upset. Your dog's upset <laughs> by your opinions. That's true. Well, I don't blame your dog. Oliver and Winston, named after Churchill, definitely prefer Sean Connery. But we can get to that in a future. Connery episode. is third. Okay. So Let's, we better wrap this up. Those pups need feeding. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's, we'll do more on Bond another day. I will simply say that I don't know how you can possibly, you know, cognitive dissonance. I don't know how you can possibly have Roger Moore is the best and Dalton is the second best, but for well, another I'll, day. I'll explain the logic when you've arranged your life well enough that canines aren't dictating your timetable. See. Sorry about the dogs. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.